Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations from Wednesday night's episode, hashtag Real Talk on Clinical Trial Design and Execution. In this conversation, Stephen Harrison asks his colleagues, Arizona Liver Health Institute Medical Director Dr. Naeem El Khoury and South Texas Research Institute Medical Director Dr. Rashmi Patil to list a top 10 of items they would like to see changed in terms of patient recruitment protocols. Between the three of them, they come up with at least 11. In the end, all five panelists, also including Louise Campbell and me, offer single key takeaways for what we would like to see happen in the process, each different, each with value. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. If you're a sponsor and you're listening to this podcast, I know many of you do, you want to you wanna listen to what Dr. Patil and Dr. Al-Khoury tell you, because the enemy of good is great. You can have the best clinical trial design on the planet and never enroll it. So what I've seen happen is trial protocols that are written, but not really run by people that are boots on ground, seeing these people day in and day out. We wind up having 10 protocol amendments because it's death by a thousand cuts. Rashmi and Naeem, what are, give me your top 10 list of things that you would like to see changed on protocols going forward. Naeem, I heard you mention BMI, and I can tell you I see a lot of times protocols where there's an upper limit of, of say, 35, maybe 40. And, and the rationale has always been, well, they can't fit in the MRI scanner or, you know, it's not necessarily a PKPD issue, as you alluded to. Certainly, that would be, if you've got that problem, I would question whether or not this is the, the right field to be studying your drug, right? So, so ultimately, pushing the BMI out, pushing age out, unless it's a phase three trial where you're going to be following them for, for a long, long time, short-term phase 2A proof of concept trials, we can take ages up higher as well. Kidney function, INR, platelet count, all these things. What are, give me, maybe Rashmi, we'll start with you. Give me four or five, six things that just really get under your skin with protocols that you would like to see sponsors maybe spend a little bit more time uh, carefully thinking through whether that should be in the protocol inclusion-exclusion criteria. It could be an inclusion or it could be an exclusion criteria. Well, I would agree with the BMI issue. We're involved in in a protocol now where we had two patients who had high-risk fiber scans, ALT, AST in the 50s, 60s, diabetic, who screen failed because of the BMI. Um, I would say, additionally, we do see several patients who have relatively normal liver enzymes who, when we take them to biopsy, they actually meet the criteria based on NAS and, and have advanced fibrosis. So I think Dr. Harrison Summit has done a, a great job in bringing the AST for women down to 17 for inclusion because before it was 20 and above. And 
and being more inclusive and understanding that there, there can be patients with normal liver enzymes who have advanced disease. I would say additionally, we have a lot of patients who are given in the pandemic, people are, are suffering from depression, anxiety, just based on what's going on in the world. And so in some of these protocols, we have mood calculators that are used. And, and sometimes patients don't have to be suicidal to fail that exam. They could just be feeling more depressed than, than they normally are. And not to mention in chronic liver disease, patients are, are typically pretty depressed because they're dealing not only with chronic liver disease, but also with typically several other comorbid conditions. Um, so I'd say that is uh, something that we need to be more granular about. Additionally, I think when we we move into cirrhosis trials, I know Naeem, you're also involved in, in several cirrhosis trials, but, but uh, that's a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> That, that we have to sort of understand how to find a compensated cirrhotic patient based on platelet count, based on meeting that patient at an early diagnosis of cirrhosis. But I would say with with NASH, uh, the other major issue that we see a lot of times is the con meds being changed around by the GPs or the endocrinologists. So we see a lot of diabetes meds being switched around during screening or even when the patient is randomized. So we have to be a little bit more lenient. I mean, I understand with the GLP-1s, you can't really you know, start a patient on a GLP-1 right when they're starting a clinical study, but there are several other classes of diabetes meds which we should be allowing. It doesn't have to be six months of stability. In, in the area where, where we live, uh, we serve a lot of uninsured or underinsured folks who, who just don't have the ability to be seeing an endocrinologist every three months. And so their A1Cs can be out of control. So if the GP needs to control the diabetes, we have to, to be a little bit more lenient in terms of the the timing of when those drugs are started. I think that's a lot. Yeah, that, that's tremendous. I want to hear Naeem's comments as well, but I want to just touch on a couple of things you said. So things I've seen in my own practice that really speak to what you said and resonate with me, this depression issue, we, we do audit C questionnaires, for instance, where we're trying to get a depressive history. And I had a, a lady just this past week who she's 58. When she was 18, she had a thought of hurting herself because of a situation she was in. She's lived an amazing life and has is very happy and has never had another thought in her life about hurting herself, not depressed in the least, but because the protocol read, if any of these are checked, yes, they're excluded. That's what we're talking about, not having wiggle room there. At least, you know, you could say something like, if positive, consult with medical monitor. PI should discuss with medical monitor to come to a consensus decision on whether to move forward. Same thing with things like blood pressure. We've had many people, I got the 160 over 100 being exclusionary, but sometimes people are very nervous. Sometimes they forget to take their medication in the morning. And if we're just allowed to retest that patient at the time, you know, they have to come back in for a second set of LFTs now, usually two to four weeks later, just allowing that blood pressure check to allow us to continue screening and then repeat that patient's blood pressure at their next time they come into clinic. The other one would be sometimes we all get labs that are just for whatever reason out of, out of range. Maybe it's a slightly too low AST. Maybe it's a creatinine or a GFR that's just one point one way or the other, or an INR or a platelet count. Allow for a one-time retest. Those are simple things that could be built into a protocol that if you don't have, that patient is suddenly, you know, screen failed. And then the combat issue, I think, is is another critical one. Uh, understand, understand fully that sometimes drug-drug interaction studies haven't been fully run to ground with your drug. 
and those will continue to be ongoing. But don't throw the pharmacopoeia at us and say you're excluded from every one of these drugs until we've studied them in DDI. That's an issue. But uh, uh, Naeem, what do you think? Do you, you have things you'd like to add to that list? I think, uh, you know, you guys discussed so many uh, important issues. Uh, I'll go back to cirrhosis trials. I think, you know, the one thing is uh, the platelet count that we want to find these patients that are, you know, the perfect cirrhotics with the platelet count above 140,000. And I think, you know, that could be sometimes unreasonable and it's really hard to find. So you have to think about every exclusion criteria. And if you think you can lower the platelet count to 120,000, then you should do it. If you think you can go down to 100,000, that's even better. The more inclusive you are, the better it is for us. Same thing with certain drugs and cirrhosis. If you have any history of esophageal varices, even if it was, you know, on an endoscopy done five years ago, you are excluded. And uh, sometimes, you know, some of these patients, despite having cirrhosis, they stopped drinking alcohol completely. They lost some weight. Maybe they don't have varices now. So uh, again, think about every exclusion criteria. For the regular NASH trials, I think also same thing applies to the fiber scan criteria you're using and uh, the mechanism of action of your drug. So if you have, you know, an antifibrotic medication and you're not so invested in steatosis, can you lower the cap to 280 instead of 300? Think about your PDFF cut point also, and that applies to cirrhosis and non-cirrhosis. We all know that you lose fat as you progress to cirrhosis. So if you're designing a cirrhosis trial, you need to lower the PDFF cutoff. You know, why have have 8% if all you need is 5% to show that there is a little bit of fat in the liver because you're trying to make sure that the uh, etiology underlying cirrhosis is fatty liver disease. Uh, so all of these things, even the, the stability of medications, Rashmi, you mentioned this, um, you know, do you need six months or can you get away with uh, three months? Does it really make difference uh, based on your drug and mechanism of action? Uh, more recently, I'm seeing also uh, the FAST score being used to screen for trials instead of specific uh, fiber scan criteria. So the most common criteria we have in trials is a CAP score above 300 and liver stiffness above 8.5, which I think makes a lot of sense if you're trying to identify patients with steatosis and F2 or higher. But the FAST score has AST in it, and the idea was to make sure that you have enough inflammation. But it is highly driven by AST, and you can end up with patients with liver stiffness of 5.5 and high AST, and they will qualify based on what cut point you use. So I'm, I'm not saying the FAST score is not a good tool. I think it's an amazing tool, but you just need to understand how to use it. And again, ask people who are actually seeing these patients in clinic uh, to select the appropriate cut point. And I, I see a very high value uh, in using it to predict patients that will not qualify. So very good negative predictive value. I'm not too sure about the positive predictive value uh, in a you know a regular GI clinic. So uh, all these you know uh, minor details, I think they end up adding up to helping us finding more patients and decreasing the screen failure rate. That's been great and, and immensely helpful, I think, for uh, our listeners. Stephen, as someone who spends more time talking to sponsors, uh, I have a question for you, which is that I put on my um, client side hat, different departments dealt with in different ways. And what I hear is pressure that they'll get if they do the kinds of things that we're talking about here. They just say, oh, they're just trying to make it easier. And I can see that pressure coming from one or more of three places. And I'm wondering, A, are those real issues? And B, in talking to sponsors, how would you uh, address that if that came up? Uh, number one, we used to joke about how legal was called the Department of Sales Prevention because their job was simply never to get a lawsuit. So anytime that you had to take a risk, they wouldn't take it. 
And I can see something like that happen here. I've done projects in the past where it turned out that regulatory had misunderstood what the agency was going to want and as a result really got hammered. So it's in their interest to be so conservative. Well, I think we have the beauty of the FDA webinar to fall back on and the white paper to support that that came out in hepatology recently. You know, look, the division has undergone massive change. There's new leadership and we're having to rethink the complexities of a of a histopathologic surrogate endpoint. So I think the agency has done a yeoman's job, a very good job of trying to clear the air in the past couple of months. And I think they made it clear, as clear as can be, that phase 2B, you need histopathology. Phase 3, you still need histopathology. Phase 2A, early proof of concept trials. In my mind, the only reason I would do histopathology is if I wanted to do something like NGM or Acaro did, where I want to get an early readout on what's happening in the liver because I'm moving the needle rapidly and profoundly and significantly on non-invasive tests. Acaro chose to do that in people that had a very profound drop in liver fat content. And they did biopsies in those that hit that number, 30% relative drop in liver fat. And they were able to use that to get additional capital funding to go do the next phase study because they de-risked that to a certain extent. So what I would say to, to people that, that are looking at designing trials is the risk has been baked in based on what the FDA has told us. If it's an early phase trial, you don't need histopathology. You just need a representative NAFLD population with some degree of having risk for NASH and fibrosis so that you can see if your treatment is going to have a positive impact on non-invasive tests. Now, here's where we are with that. If you're a drug that moves liver fat, PDFF is now well described to correlate with change in histopathology if you hit a certain threshold of change. ALT has done that as well. We don't fully yet know what magnitude of effect change in Pro-C3 or ELF correlates with positive impacts on histology, but we know what baselines are for disease disease severity. So for Pro-C3, for instance, we know above 15, 15 and a half, that's going to correlate with a more advanced NASH population. ELF scores above 9.8 do the same thing. We learned a little bit from Intercept that a 25% reduction in fiber scan over time has a correlatory impact on histopathology as well. So I'd say that to say when you design your trial, this, the people that are interested in whether or not you are successful are the investors for the next round of your trial. And they're going to ask, did you hit this metric that correlates to either an outcome or that correlates to a change in histopathology that we're likely to see if I invest more money in your paired liver biopsy phase two trial. So as long as you're, you're identifying your non-invasive test that's likely to be accentuated by your mechanism of action, that's de-risking your trial. And you don't need liver biopsies in that early phase study, which means you can be more uh, liberal and who you include in those early phase trials. Now, when you get to a, a phase 2B study, it becomes a little bit more restrictive, and certainly it does in phase 3. This has been a fantastic conversation, and we're kind of getting to the bottom of it. So let me do this, Stephen, first, and then we'll go around. The one message that you would like to deliver first to sponsors, then to investors about how to understand the right way to approach this. I just heard you say be strategic, but that's a short, without saying exactly that, but that's a short phrase. One simple thing that 
sponsor needs to keep in mind and investor needs to keep in mind. It can be a big picture, small picture thing. I don't really care. What do you think? Well, you know me, I'm, I'm, I can't ever come up with just one thing. So I'm going to give you a couple quick bullet points. Number one, there are plenty of people out there with significant disease that could be enrolled in clinical trials, but it's complicated to find them. And you want to focus on trial sites that have a process in place to identify these patients. In that same token, you want to listen to these PIs, these principal investigators that have been in the battle and that know the complexities of what makes a trial easy to enroll and what it, makes it more challenging to enroll. And as I said before, the enemy of good is great. Don't design the most perfect trial on the planet and expect it to be enrolled quickly. Have realistic expectations in the era of COVID and in the era of having multiple competing trials that if you have a 300-patient paired liver biopsy trial that enrolls F2 and F3 patients only and you're required to get an MRI, that it's going to take you a long time to enroll that trial. Just understand that. You can't enroll that, and that the, the investors of the world need to hear that. You're not going to enroll a large Phase 2B trial in six months or even a year. A Phase 3 trial where you're putting a 1,000 patients in it and you're very, very selective in that patient population will take even longer to enroll. That's just the, where we are today. It doesn't mean it can't be. And we need to work side by side to develop the right criteria to accelerate enrollment. But at the same time, we need to be working with the sponsors on how to identify people, how to build our disease state awareness campaign to get at the patients, to get at the endocrinologist, the primary care docs, our GI colleagues. How do we do that? Well, there's a lot of ways to do that. Reach out to us. We'll help you understand it. But I get back to what Louise said at the very beginning that really just resonates with me is these providers are so focused on the task at hand in the COVID era that they're not they're not opening their minds to thinking about new ideas and new treatment possibilities. And so we have to open that back up for them, particularly as vaccinations come online. So sorry I took so long, but there's so much to cover. And I, I want to say thank you again for Rashmi and Naeem coming on board and helping uh, Louise and myself and, and Roger work through this complicated task. Amen to that. And with that, um, whoever wants to go next with a message that they would like to get to the sponsors and evaluate and investors, people who are evaluating all this and, dri and driving the challenges. Stephen, you summed it up very eloquently. I think the key message for me is, you know, talk to investigators that actually run the clinical trials early on. Don't design a protocol knowing you're going to amend it as soon as you start enrolling for the trial. Just check with us early on so we can help you. And uh, I think, uh, you know, the other thing we touched base on is the, the histologic endpoints. And uh, we didn't even talk about issues related to local reads and central reads and discordance between pathologists. Even at experienced sites, we still have about 35% screen failure rate related to pathology. And if you go to inexperienced sites, I mean, that can be as high as 70, 80%. And I think that's just not fair for these patients to undergo liver biopsy and then not qualify for the study because they have uh, less severe disease. So I think, uh, you know, the, the key message is just start the conversation early and talk to the sites and develop a protocol that's 
that's realistic that will actually enroll patients that represent NASH patients that we see in clinical practice. I'll echo what everybody said. Just to add a little confounder in there, education is key. And Rashmi said it at the very beginning that certain populations feel that they're excluded from trials. They don't engage very well. They do feel like they're guinea pigs. And very much wealth is health. The majority of people who are enrolled into clinical trials come from higher socioeconomic groups. We can access better healthcare. We can access better education. And it shouldn't always be on the health service providers, the research trial sites, the primary care physicians to educate. We need protocol sponsors to start to educate communities to be available and want to participate in clinical trials that affect them greatly. We need to get rid of the barriers to distrust. And COVID, sadly, again, has distanced the socioeconomic groups. So therefore, a lot of our population who are really eligible for these trials sit in the lower socioeconomic groups with the least access and the least educational opportunities, but with the greatest wealth of people who could benefit from these clinical trials. So for me, to be able to ask sponsors to improve the educational materials to primary care and different populations would be would help enroll those trials a lot quicker and also break down the barriers for people entering clinical studies. I would echo everything that the others on this podcast have already mentioned, but I, I do think what Louise just said is really important, and that is we've got to continue to educate the physicians who are seeing these patients. You know, the majority of these NASH patients with advanced fibrosis are sitting in primary care physician clinics and in endocrinology clinics. And we have to meet the patients where they are, either in these practices or in the community. I think the other thing that is really important that I took away from this is that we have three top enrolling principal investigators on this call today. And at each one of our sites, we would be thrilled if we could enroll 150 patients in a year. And so what that means is that it is extremely difficult to get patients enrolled into these NASH clinical trials and get them through the hurdles of screening. So we're given eight weeks to do labs, stability labs as well, MRI, biopsy, fibro scan, and then you go into cirrhosis trials and we have to add endoscopy and hepatocellular carcinoma screening into those eight weeks. So it's just really important for sponsors and for those designing these trials to meet us where we are, realistically, boots on the ground, as Dr. Harrison said. That's great. And, and Rashmi, thanks for a fantastic first contribution. Looking forward to having you back many times as, as we move along. I've listened to all this through the ear of the people who've been my clients and, and were my marketing clients and my senior management clients as well. And I think what may happen in some of these cases is that they get a competitive intelligence firm who goes and looks at clinicaltrials.gov and says, this is what so-and-so is doing, you got to do that. Or as I said, regulatory people whose uh, incentives involve never getting a trial thrown back for having been too liberal in your interpretation of who you can include. And people who develop a bias about what a good practice is. And the world is changing, but they're not catching up because they don't have the time. I think Stephen's point about good and great being the enemy, I think that's right. If you have a competitor who's got a trial file that you know about that has a wish list that sounds too perfect for words, it's probably safe to assume they're going to have problems executing it. So rather than trying to chase them down the hole of perfect, decide that the competitive advantage might merely be to do the most realistic trial you can do fastest. Because one of the things we know in virtually every drug class ever is first to market with a successful product has the highest long-term 
return on investment, even if they don't ultimately dominate the class because they've got years in advance of everybody else where they're the only game there. So if the goal is to get the first good product to market and not the first perfect trial submitted to the FDA, I think the advice you folks have been giving today is just fantastically helpful in terms of people understanding the difference between the two and where to look for margins and abilities to get an edge. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. We're releasing two more conversations from this episode, and we'll release our next full episode on Wednesday, February 18th. I hope you'll enjoy the conversations and join us then. Until then, stay safe and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.